make sure we're on air <laughs> and not heat.
Good morning. Good to see you all here. So they say the good thing about the first 90 degree day is you find out whether or not your air conditioning is working. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it's not. So I don't know if the windows would help or not, but feel free to open them. Uh, let's take a look at our announcements. Now, O oh Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O oh Lord, are God. Isaiah 37, 20. There'll be no Bible study tonight, no choir practice. We're going to have the holiday weekend Sunday night off. Um, if you haven't already, take a empty uh, baby bottle from the foyer table. That would be directly behind me. Um, fill it with money and bring it back for the Pregnancy Center on Father's Day. I know that this is this is not only us; it's in the it's in the entire community. So, a big fundraiser for the center. Prayer meeting Wednesday at seven. You'll see uh, Andrea's telephone number there for the texting contact on prayer chain. Adult, adult Bible study Friday, June the eighth. It's going to be at Cramden Park uh, this time. Bring snacks to share, bug spray, and sunscreen. June's social event, drive-in movie night. Um, you'll see a sign-up sheet there on the helps board, and so we can know how many will come and who's going to ride with who and so forth. So that's Friday, June the 15th. Watch the bulletin and prayer chain for updates. Social planning group will meet at the Armstrong home June the 5th at 10.30 a.m. See Jess. Attention nursery workers, changes are coming to the children's ministry programs. We need two more volunteers to serve. If you would like to help with that, see Jolene. And in addition to that, not in your bulletin, attention to new children's church teachers and helpers. There will be a meeting after church next Sunday, June the 3rd, upstairs in the children's church room to go over the new curriculum and routine for the Children's Church Program, which begins in June. So if you're involved in the Children's Church, you'll want to make that meeting it's next Sunday upstairs. All right. Acts and Facts. The Acts and Facts are here. I just happened to have one here. Did you do that for me? So those are on the foyer table. Make good use of those. Of course, they're free. Oh, did I miss it on there? Oh, thank you. Anyway, it's on the announcements. I missed it, but they are here. Did an asteroid impact kill the dinosaurs? So interesting reading on that. And with that, I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation this morning, and that is Proverbs chapter 3, read verses 1 through 
Lord, to bless us. George, would you lead us in? Father, how we praise you today for the opportunity to gather in your name. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for the weather that you've given us, even though it's warm. It's a whole lot better than the cold. And uh, we do appreciate your goodness to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we're gathered to worship you this day. Make our minds clear of the earthly thoughts that we might indeed appreciate the reality of Christ and what he's done for us. Help Master as he speaks, give him liberty, and uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to hear and to receive your word. We ask this all in the precious name of Christ. morning. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 356, 356 in the brown.
Rangers was the first hand that I saw. Needles. Truth is marching on. Battle hymn of the Republic. Um, why do you want this hymn? Four, five, six, nine. Five, six, nine in the brown. Five, hundred, six, nine.
scripture reading this morning is taken from Isaiah, the 36th chapter. We'll be reading verses 4 through 21. Shall we all stand? Isaiah chapter 36, beginning with verse 4. The field commanders said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now. You are dependent on Egypt, that splinter reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Elikim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servant in, servants in Arabic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall whom, uh, who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own bodily fluids? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be taken into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you. When he says the Lord will deliver us, he has God of an he ha has the God of any nation ever delivered this, his hand from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? 
Where are the gods of Sheraphim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Of who all the gods of these countries has been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. May God bless the reading of his word this day. Another song? Take your brown hymnal once again and turn to number 346, 346 in your brown hymnal. Our scripture text is Isaiah 36. Sorry about the error. We'll get that fixed. Um, 
Mr. Adam. <laughs> He's our AC guy. The wonderful guy, too. You got mine working at the house. This must be the year for uh, failing AC systems or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we will get it fixed. And um, just remember, this building was built in 1840. They didn't exactly have AC back then. Right, we're looking in our series of Joy Unspeakable, and we looked into the subject, the joy of salvation, and we learned that the penalty <clears throat> of which God warned Adam and Eve, when you eat of it, it the forbidden tree, you will surely die. That was enacted the moment Eve ate that fruit and gave to her husband, who also ate. This clear command was boldly violated. Eve, by deception of Satan, Adam willfully by choice, but both in violation of God's pre-warning so that they were without excuse. Paul writes it this way, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Romans 1 verse 25. principle being simply this, that listening to any counsel of men that runs contrary to God's word is a form of idolatry. And we need to be mindful of that. Secondly, we discovered that God could not change his mind about the penalty and still be God. Any change in God, his mind, his person, his plans, his prophecies, makes God mutable. And if God can change his mind, then he wasn't perfect in the, original, in the original decision. If you change something, then it wasn't perfect. You and I trust God's word, and he cannot go back on it. He's reliable, and because he's reliable, his word is also reliable well God did something better he gave an advanced promise of redemption that would supplement the advanced warning of sin and actually resolve the penalty his son would die our death his son would experience our hell and would win the victory over sin and death the recipients of the joy of salvation we become a spiritual people with a new nature. We become people born of God. No one conceives himself or herself in the physical realm, and no one births themselves in the spiritual realm. We are products of God's grace. And that brings us to today's study. We want to talk about the joy of a trusting heart. As we do, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Holy Father, please send your word to us that we might be enabled to understand the truth of it. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us the, to rely upon your word. The naysayers are very much with us in our day as they were in the days of Hezekiah. He took effrontery from this commander from Sennacherib, but he stood firm to the truth of your word and by your grace and blessing his people 
your people stood firm as well, and they were not intimidated by the cruel and terrible words spoken by this commander against the living God. Blasphemers are still with us in our day, but our faith is not based upon the distortions that people give to the word of God. Our faith is based upon the truth of your word and upon the living truth who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who will not allow his word to return to him empty. Bless these truths to our heart and help us as we study the joy of a trusting heart. We ask this for your glory first and foremost and then for our good as well. Amen. We're looking at the subject today of the joy of a trusting heart. And you'll see in your bulletin outline, the first thing is ineffectual faith versus effectual faith. I think it's vital that we learn this distinction because your salvation rests on a correct understanding right here at this point. When the foreign commander in the field addressed the beleaguered Israelites... Surrounded and confined within the city walls of Jerusalem, he intentionally spoke in Hebrew so that all the onlookers would hear and be demoralized. He knew what he was doing. And the main point was that Israel would be foolish (laughs) to expect deliverance from their God, just as all those nations previously subdued by Sennacherib were foolish to think that they would be protected by their gods. He says in verse 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Syria? Isaiah 36, verse 18. Now you see, there is an assumed parallel of faith here. Sennacherib's commander sees no difference between the faith of the defeated nations in their idol gods, the faith of Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, and their faith in the Lord God. To him, it's just one and the same. And he uses that assumed parallel to demoralize the Israelites and to insult Jehovah. It's almost like he's bragging. If any God would be worthy of faith, it's our God who has given us all these stupendous victories. Within context, these Assyrian commanders admitted that the nations whom they had already defeated were people of faith. Verse 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And then he lists some of those nations. He goes on, have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Isaiah 36, verse 18 through 20. Now, apart from the fact that these gods to whom the commander made reference are worthless, lifeless, idols, I think 
apart from that, he has a point. And the point is that the defeated and subdued nations were believers too. They believed that their God would deliver them from Sennacherib's war machine. So how silly to think that Hezekiah's God could fare any better. And I would say that this is a point that did not escape Hezekiah. He sent messengers to the prophet Isaiah, saying in chapter 37, verse 4, Hear the words of the field commander whom the king of Assyria has sent to ridicule the living God. Wow, what a wonderful statement. All this talk about the nations having faith in their gods has not dissuaded Hezekiah in the least. Why not? Well, move further down in the text in chapter 37 to Hezekiah's prayer. Chapter 37, verse 18 and following. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire. They have destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Isaiah 37, verse 17 and following. I like the way he says that because what is he? He is jealous for God's vindication and God's glory. He's not saying, you deliver uh, us, O Lord, or anything of that nature. We're in trouble. No, he's saying, Lord, your name is in trouble. This pipsqueak out here in the field thinks that he's going to attack us in Jerusalem like he's done with all the other Kings and their false gods. Belief alone, brethren, is not saving in effect. Let me say it again. Belief alone is not saving in effect. There has to be a right object to your faith. And it has nothing to do with sincerity. I'm sure that all those countries over which Sennacherib rolled his forces, leaving devastation, death, and poverty behind. I'm sure they all sincerely believed that their gods would protect them and deliver them. But the objects of their faith were idols, he says, wood, stone, fashioned by human hands. Isaiah 37, verse 9. And Isaiah, just a few chapters onward, if you flip over to chapter 44, verse 13 and following, gives one of the best analysis there is of idol gods. Let me read it for you. He says, The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all of his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. 
He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. It is a man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself as he kindles a fire. He makes and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Just think of the incongruity of that. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. I'm still reading scripture. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He also warms himself and he says, Ah, I'm warm. See the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and he worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. And then I say a response. They know nothing. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. He cannot save himself. He cannot say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? A lie. Isaiah 44, verse 13 through 20. Boy, you will not find a better description of idolatry in the scriptures. And in all this, brethren, we discover that having faith, having faith is not enough. The object of your faith is all important. The nations that Sennacherib of Assyria crushed and spoiled were people of faith. They were. But the objects of their faith It's all important. The objects of their faith were only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Isaiah 36, verse verse 37. Excuse me, I'll say it again. Isaiah 37, verse 19. Now, in contrast to that, is the one to whom Hezekiah prayed, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. We got the idols that the nations worship, and then we have the living God. So here is the God not made by human hands, but the God who did the making. (laughs) The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. 
Not a God of inanimate stone or wood, but the living God. In these days of political elections, we are hearing a lot of people talking about their faith. It's as though faith by itself were all that was necessary to assure divine intervention and divine approval. People talk about how their faith got them through some tough time in their life. Well, this may have been little more than a psychological crutch of positive thinking that had nothing to do with faith in the God of the Bible. Hitler, during World War II, underwent about 15 assassination attempts on his life, all of them unsuccessful. Time and again, when he came through these, un, these uh, attempts on his life unscathed, he would credit providence, God, being on his side, protecting him. And he was convinced that God was placing his stamp of approval upon Hitler's war efforts. Yet the man was deeply into the occult worship of Satan in his actual practice. So Hitler's God was a far cry from the true and living God of the Bible. But he had faith. Uh While Americans speak often of their faith, if their faith is not in the God of creation, the maker of heaven and earth, even if their faith is of their own imagination, that is ideological in nature rather than physical, the result is the same. Isaiah says, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing a lie? Paul adds this dimension, which most people never consider. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Wow. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. So the image that is the real representation of God is Jesus Christ. Did not our Lord say, He who has seen me has seen Now then, secondly, faith in God versus trust in God. So, well, you're making some kind of a distinction there. Yes, I am. Note in our text this morning, Isaiah 36, verse 15, King Sennacherib's commander understood 
the difference, and he slanted his arguments for surrender in these terms. Let me read it for you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. Observe, he does not say, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to believe in the Lord. Instead, he used the word trust. Why the word trust instead of the word belief? Belief is mental assent. Trust is affirmative action. Belief is recognition. Trust is reliance. Belief is principle. Trust is practice. Belief is ideology. Trust is reality. We just learned that a person can have faith and yet that faith can be ineffectual because the object of faith, what they believe in, is not God by, but some infi- uh, figment of their imagination. Faith in a man-made conception of God and not the God who is the Almighty, who has the power to truly help. The object of our faith must be the God of the Bible if we truly want results. But now we come to a different issue. What if, what if the object of our faith is the God of the Bible? Okay. Is that enough to assure us his presence and intervention when we call out for help? What if our faith is not in idols of man's making, but in God, the God of Scripture? Does belief in God move the hand of God on our behalf? Do we not hear people say all the time, well, I believe in God. And on the basis of that professed faith, they believe that God is their friend, that he's a refuge in strength and ever-present help in trouble, Psalm 46, verse 1. Did you know that there is a faith in the true God of the Bible, not idols, a faith in the true God of the Bible, which in the end is bogus and does no good? James made a very pointed assertion about this when he wrote. Let me read it for you. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Oh, let me read it again. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, Well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. He is saying there is no such thing as faith without deeds. They go together like a hand in a glove. 
Where you find faith, you will also find righteous deeds. He goes on. You believe, you believe that there is one God. You're monotheistic in your faith. You believe there is one God. Not multiple gods, just one. The one that is revealed in the Bible. James goes on, good. Oh yeah, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. I'm still reading scripture. You foolish man. Faith without deeds is useless. James 2, 17 through 20. What is the apostle saying? He is saying that any faith that does not result in trust, deeds commensurate with the beliefs, is useless or dead faith. Even demons can muster that kind of faith in God. But in the end, they are demons still. Their faith in God does not change them. They do not trust Him. They do not actively lean on Him for life and living. They do not adopt His moral principles of behavior. They continue in their wickedness. They continue in their deception. They continue in their lies. And all the while they believe in God. I would say it this way. They know God better than most of us. Not just about God. But God as he is. The creator and in their case. Judge. He says they shudder at that thought. If your faith in God does not change you, then your faith is bogus. You can call God Savior, but he doesn't call you brother. And I am fearful that in America, there are many, many, maybe the majority of professing Christians that fall into that category. They know the Bible facts about God. They know the story of creation. They believe in God as creator. They can recall the prophecies promising a coming Savior. They know they need a Savior. They believe Jesus is that Savior. But all of this falls short of actually trusting Christ as Savior. Knowledge is good and necessary. True faith believes the truth and shuns falsehood. But faith without commitment is faith without trust. And faith without trust is faith without deeds. And faith without deeds is dead. And dead faith never lays hold of God any more than the demons' faith makes them children of God. We need to take these matters to heart because we talk about faith all the time. We need to be sure that we're talking about things in reality. So then secondly, what are the characteristics of trusting faith? Characteristics of trusting faith. Let me list some for you. Number one, trusting faith seeks God's honor over personal safety. 
God's honor over personal safety. The problem with most people's definition of faith is in, in God is that their alleged faith is all about what God is going to do for me. Lord, I'm in trouble. When are you going to step in and help me? Now, I believe you can come to my side, and I need your deliverance now. It's all me, my, I. Hezekiah listened as Sennacherib's commander relayed all the victories they had had over the other nations. Verse 20. Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? When Hezekiah was informed of this blasphemy, he sent off an envoy of trusted advisors to Isaiah the prophet, saying, This is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there's not enough strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Isaiah 37, verse 3 and 4. Remember, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by Sennacherib's army. Nobody was going in, nobody was coming out, no food in, no food out, no water. Things were desperate. People were dying, being buried within the city walls. There was a remnant. What is it that had Hezekiah so upset? Is it this deplorable situation in the city? No. It is, and I'll give it to you in his words, the rebuke and disgrace. The rebuke and the disgrace evident in the field commander's speech against Israel's God. And the fact that Sennacherib himself had sent this official to ridicule the living God. That's what has Hezekiah upset. I'm very shame that God had to hear such things. And so he requests Isaiah to pray. Hezekiah did more. He obviously received a letter from Sennacherib himself reiterating all the obnoxious speech of the field commander. So he carried this blasphemous letter into God's temple, and the scripture says, Isaiah 37, 14, he spread it out, this letter, he spread it out before the Lord in the temple. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. You can read it for yourself, Lord. I brought the letter to the temple. 
I laid it on the floor there. You can read it. He goes on. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Isaiah 37, verse 16 through 20. Observe that Hezekiah does not simply pray for deliverance. He states his underlying motive. So that... All the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. What I am saying is that trusting faith seeks God's honor over personal safety. Now, Jerusalem was in a bad way. Hezekiah knew that. People were dying, being buried within the city. But that's not what he prays for. He is obsessed with the fact that God is being disgraced. He's being insulted by this pagan king. Secondly, trusting faith seeks God's solution over man's alternatives. As indicated, Hezekiah and his people were in a bad way. They had been under siege for some time. Sennacherib had encircled the city. No one was getting in. No one was getting out. Food and water, the very essentials of life, were scarce, becoming even more depleted by the day. Sennacherib's commander put it in the most disgusting terms. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 36, verse 12. You will have to eat your own filth and drink your own urine. Already many in Jerusalem had died. Hezekiah asked Isaiah, pray for the remnant that's, I'm reading scripture, pray for the remnant that still survives. Chapter 37, verse 4. Yeah, rough times. Well, desperate times causes believers to consider desperate measures, don't they? For some, God is not the answer. He seems to be distant, uncaring, unconcerned. And so people opt for secular and humanistic solutions. They want something in the here and now. And they do not want to wait for their prayers to be heard and their prayers to be answered. Lord, we need help now. When are you going to do it? By the way, Hezekiah was given, he was given an alternative by Sennacherib to total annihilation. Let's read it. It's in chapter 36, verse 16 and following. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Isaiah 36, verse 16 and following. This alternative is clear as crystal. What is being said here is this. Surrender, surrender will be good for you. It'll be good for you. <laughs> you get your own farms back, temporarily. And even when I come and take you away, it will be to a land like your own with plenty to eat and drink. Rich farms. Cornfields. Or, or, you can hole up in Jerusalem, starving to death as you are, until I break down your walls, march through your streets, and slaughter many and enslave the rest. Like it or not, your God will not be able to help you, so be wise. Oh, those are so smooth words, aren't they? <laughs> the enemy of our soul comes to us with smooth words. I get well, you, you have you you have a little bit of an alternative here. You can come out and surrender and things will go well for you. I can stay right where you're at and be slaughtered. It is a brilliant and diabolical appeal to human reason. Use your head. Life in a goodly land of foodstuffs and wine or slaughter on the streets of Jerusalem. You choose. Oh, but there was a third alternative that was never mentioned. God, the living God whom Israel served, would indeed hear their prayers and rescue them from Sennacherib's evil intentions. Chapter 36, verse 21. All these insults coming from Sennacherib's commander, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Isaiah 36, verse 21. So they just, they, they stood there on the walls, they heard all these insults against their God, against the true God. All these promises of horror that's going to happen if they choose to stay in the city. And Hezekiah had told the people, look, when this guy gets up there and just badmouths God and you and insults our save, Savior... Zip it up. Don't give him a response. And he was following what King Solomon had said before him. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Let him rant. Let him vent. Don't enter into this dialogue from the wall to the field. <laughs> 
Just trust the Lord. And that's my third point, the joy of a trusting heart. Number one, confident expectation that God will answer our prayers. James instructs us how to pray. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all that he does. James 1, verses 5 through 8. James is talking about a trusting faith. As we've already discovered in the latter chapters, where he talks about faith with deeds attached to it. Hezekiah and his people prayed, trusting God to intervene. God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah, Isaiah being the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word of the, the Lord has spoken against him. What's that word? The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head and you will flee. Who is it that you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride. You have spoken against the Holy One of Israel. But I know where you stay and when you come and when you go and how you rage against me. And because you rage against me and because your violence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return to the way that you came. Isaiah 37 Verse 21 and following. Trusting faith experiences the joy of confident answers to prayer. The second joy of trusting faith is the joy of forgiveness and recovery and salvation. Sennacherib's success in laying siege to Jerusalem was directly related to Israel's flirtation with other sources of sustenance and strength, principally Egypt. In Isaiah 30, verse 9 and following, Woe to the obstinate children, God says. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And they say to the prophets, give us no more visions of what's right. Tell us, tell us, Pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. 
Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Wow. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall that collapses suddenly in an instant. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Isaiah 30, verse 9 and following. If you read chapter 36, verse 6 and following, you will discover that Sennacherib knew all about this alliance with Egypt and its failure. He knew about it. And he is right when he said, The Lord himself told me to march against this country, Jerusalem, and destroy it. Assyria was God's rod of punishment. But Assyria became proud and usurped the credit from God. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it, says God. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. Chapter 37, verse 26. Under Hezekiah, Judah repented of her sin. Praise the Lord. And now, now because of her trusting faith... God promised recovery. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 37, verse 31 and following. Trusting faith results in the joy of forgiveness, recovery, salvation. They repented. And the Lord is postured to deliver them. It's a great lesson for us. Make your way back to God. Repent. Repent. And renew your faith. And God will sustain you. Then lastly, the joy of God's exaltation and the enemy's defeat. God's people are never on the losing side. And they win through the God in whom they trust. A spanking is not judgment. And sometimes God spanks us in godly discipline so that we do not perish in our sin. But such chastening is remedial. It's not punitive. Did you know that all of your sins, if you're a believer, all of your sins were punished? Were punished in the sacrifice of Jesus on his cross. God is not in the business of punishing his people. Jason, yeah, he'll give us a spanking. Correction, bring us back. But as I said, it's not punitive. 
Contrast that with Sennacherib's and his godless army. Let me read it for you. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. Whoa. He will not come before it with shield. He will not build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. I will defend this city. I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. I'm still reading. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp, withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, when he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroth, his sons cut him down with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarthedon, his son, succeeded him as king. Isaiah 37, verse 33 and following. Men don't mock God and get away with it. Sennacherib had come against the living God. Hezekiah had prayed, deliver us from his hand. So that all kingdoms may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So what about you? My question to you is not, it is not, do you believe in God? I could go out here on Dryden Road. Stop all the cars, and I believe that the largest percentage of people would say to the question, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, I believe in God. That's not the question. The question is, have you entrusted your life to him? Have you gotten past the mental ascent Have you gotten to the place of a trusting heart? Okay, you say you have, but where is the evidence of change? Where is the evidence of change that you've trusted God and trusted your life to him? No evidence? Oh, then I'm sorry. You have a bogus faith. You are deluded. Solomon words it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's a trusting faith. Only God can give that kind of faith. I pray that God has given that to you. And if not, today, if you hear his voice, excuse me, if you hear his voice, don't depend upon what you've done, how you've prayed, the fact that you attend church, give money to the church, or any of a bunch of other things. Cast yourself simply upon Christ and his atoning work. It's all Jesus or not at all. I've said it before, say it again. Christ is not going to share his glory with you. Well, I had to believe. People that talk that way do not understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They do not understand that faith is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast, and there they are, still boasting. I had to believe. I had to believe. They haven't gotten the basic me message of grace. <laughs> Salvation is of God from start to finish. And we had better praise him and trust him. Not what we've done, but what he's done. Praise his name. Thank you, Father, for your word. How precious to us. Porson Ackerib, he just didn't get it, did he? He thought because you, O Lord, had given him victory over these lesser cities, he thought of himself with great pride that there was nobody, not even Jerusalem, that could withstand his armies. At this point, he didn't really see that the other cities were a gift from you. He thought by his own might and strength, he had won the victories. I'm wondering if uh, Sennacherib's mentality somehow has infiltrated itself into Christendom. That people think, well, yeah, we need God's intervention. We need his salvation. Christ has his part to do. But I had to believe, and I did that on my own. And we begin to think that we're in some kind of a partnership with you. I've even heard it said that way, Lord. God has done 97%. Now the rest is up to you. Is it up to us? 1%, half a percent, a quarter percent. What difference does it make if we can't supply that percent? If we're dead in trespasses and sins, and if our faith is dead, what we need, Lord, is a complete revision from head to toe. We need to be drawn to you as John Chapter 6 talks about no man comes into the Father 
on his own. I pray, Lord, that you will get the glory. One thing about Hezekiah, he wanted the glory to go to God, not to some kind of an alliance with the Egyptians, not to some kind rallying the troops within the walls of Jerusalem. No, none of that. He wanted you to intervene, and you did, because he wanted you to get the glory. Lord, when you save sinners, you are to get the glory. I pray that you will help us to see that. Yes, we must believe, we must trust, but we must also recognize that the faith that believes and lays hold of Christ is the gift of God. Bless these truths to our heart and magnify yourself, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 348 in the hymnal. 348. Let's stand together as we sing. 348.
because it is a holiday week, we will not have an evening service tonight. Normally do. Um, being Memorial uh, Sunday, you might want to look on the board that hangs over the uh, cooler out here. It has uh, memorial plaques to all those of our assembly that have died and gone home to be with the Lord. Those are the people I like to remember in light of the fact that they've kept the faith, right? And they didn't apostatize. Great truths. Uh, two rings I'm wearing this morning. <laughs> the black onyx was uh, my high school graduation ring from my mom and dad. <laughs> I remember it well because uh, we had a catalog where they bought jewelry from. They kept pointing to the, don't you like this ring, don't you like this? They kept pointing to the cheaper ring. Selfish me. <laughs> no, I like this one. No, I like this one. So in sacrifice, they bought me this one. High school. The little rings from Donna on my 50th birthday, a few years ago, <laughs> remembering the people of our past that have loved the Lord, stayed true to the faith. Those are the people that are precious to me. Yes, the soldiers too that died for our freedom. But you know, in, in Christianity, we're involved in warfare too. It's a different kind. We do battle against our souls, enemies, the world, and the devil, and our own flesh. And to have victory over those enemies in Christ is a great victory. And one day, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord, a new glorified body. Well, I hope you'll remember these things as uh, you go your way today, and I know you're going to be with family, and that's good. Don't forget the saints that have gone before us. We do have a chapter in the Bible. It's in the book of Hebrews. You can read it. It's called the By-Faith chapter. And the writer is reminding himself and his readers of all the godly people that have gone on before him. Paved the way, secured the truth held on to it for their generations to come. And we need to rejoice in that. Thank you, one and all. We are dismissed.